Welcome to episode 287 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Devonshire Square. My name is David Breer and I'll be your host for today. And I'm joined by my colleagues from 11FS, co-hosts of Fintech Insider, Lida Glyptus and Jason Bates. How are you doing, guys? Good. How are you? Great. You guys, are you looking at me shocked like... Damn, you got through that in one take. What's going on? I know. It's, it was all professional. For my first week back at work and, and you're here being professional. I'll be honest, I've had a lot of caffeine today. So this is probably, I'm going to be like light speed. So if anybody's got that feature on your podcast client to slow down, now might be the time. Um, but yeah, what have you been up to this week? Uh, just getting back to it, like that was a long Christmas, New Year break and suddenly thousands of email. The um, number of Slack messages to catch up with when you've turned the client off for a while is just freakish. So uh, just catching up. They were mainly from Leader as well, weren't they? Pretty really? much. Where are you, Jason? Where are you? <laughs> yeah. December 25th, December 26th, <laughs> December 27th. Uh, and on that note, before it gets too too difficult, I feel like we're going to have to separate you two pretty quickly. Uh, as always, we're not alone, which is good. Uh, we're joined by some fantastic guests, uh, two of whom are making their debuts today, which is nice. So uh, I'm I'm pretty sort of famous for murdering names. So let's hear where we go with this one. Um, but uh, Yepe Rindom. Correct. That's, oh, a, that's that a good one. CEO of Plio. So thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm perfect. I flew in this morning. I'm a bit tired, but I'm good. Okay. Well, let's see what we can do to uh, to liven you up over the course of this one in terms of where we are. And Salim Chandowry? Chowdhury. Chowdhury. Uh, partner at 500 Startups. How's it going? Good. Good. Um, I don't know what to say. It's exciting. <laughs> I'm in an office and I'm speaking into a microphone. This is like an unusual thing for me. <laughs> They're always listening, right? Uh, and back by popular demand, I think, because you you always kind of have quite good fun here, I think, Simon. But um, Simon Vanskalina from Monzo. How's it going, Simon? Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. You guys have uh, had a kind of pretty busy couple of months since last we spoke as well. Busy couple of years, really. Indeed. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's get into the news. Okay, so first up, we have a story which is Bo Selector. Hilarious. Do love that. So this is RBS chooses loot. So this is RBS take a stake in the student-focused fintech. So Royal Bank of Scotland have taken a 25% stake in student-focused fintech startup loot. Uh, they provide a current account, prepaid debit card, controls and spending, and all sorts of good stuff for young people. Um, quite an interesting one, this, I, I think. Like, loot were probably... I think they were they founded about the same time as Monzo. I remember them. They were, we considered them like we, we we talked about loot a lot in the early days. I remember that. Like I think they a, were a bit before. Yeah, they were definitely there was some prior art for sure. They were definitely around before us. Um, and and I guess they you know they aimed at a very sort of specific niche in terms of what they've done for for students. And actually, I, I remember they had quite an interesting sort of distribution model around using uh, the student union. The <laughs> advocates for kind of going out but that seems to have been something that a lot of other people have kind of caught on to as a smart way of actually getting acquisition but what do you guys see to this both in terms of i guess loot selling in terms of the things that they're doing but also rbs getting involved so heavily with a, a kind of quite a, a fledgling startup albeit not necessarily from an age perspective it, it, 25% is, is quite something. It, it's, it doesn't sound like a super passive uh, move for RBS. This sounds like something with rights and like something strategic, in, in my opinion. Uh, so it's, I think it's interesting. Um, oh, no, or is this really just... Um, so I take the cynical... So I work for a Silicon Valley VC fund. So it, cynicism is unfortunately part of our, our, our worldview. Um, is this just really the classic case of the gray-haired old bank trying to do something sexy to keep shareholders happy? Um, that's what it feels like. 
Um, I hope it isn't. I mean, RBS are, you know, Britain needs banks. Um, and, um, we still need our old school ones because we still own a lot of RBS, if I remember correctly, as UK taxpayers. Um, but is it them? Are they just trying to be sexy? That's just, it just feels very much like it. I don't really see the strategic eerness of it all. Is this the I, first I, thing I, Bo has like done under their own name though? Like we keep saying RBS has done this, but like, is this the first thing that like we've heard about Bo actually putting a stake in the ground? I, I think it's. In terms of something as public, yes. In terms of delivery, no. I think it's unfair. I like the cynicism, but I think it's unfair to say that uh, RBS are desperately trying to be sexy because they've actually done some really interesting things, not least with us. Well, yes, I, um, I didn't want to bring that up, but yeah, you know. and, and it's meaningful <laughs> stuff. So, so I think that that element is is slightly. Um, but if it's if that's the case, why not just buy them out? I mean, it's nowhere near enough. I mean, if you really believe in something, well, the, buy the, the whole thing out. The question is. I would just—I would actually disagree with that because diversification is is a sensible play. But for me, the interesting thing is that um, loot was was pretty cool and exciting when they started. I remember feeling extremely old when I first met them because their CEO was like, seven. he's twenty four. Yeah, I know. He's like, so he's twenty four now. Mm, bloody hell! Um, but and and he had a really cool business model and and really focused, and the app was beautiful before we got used to that. But it didn't. It didn't go where we thought it would go. And the fact that Monzone's Darling and, and, and those slightly more, slightly meatier challengers that would actually tap into the same market took off at the same time. I think the comparative growth is a very interesting factor. And, and to me, it would make sense to, to do that because I, I don't see it growing anymore on its own steam. Well, I think we're, we're seeing that across a number of sectors. You know, you have, let's say, the top six, top two or three are investable you know they're in the game they're in the race they're there if you're four five or six that starts to get a bit of a more difficult conversation like are you really going to go against these guys that are you know simon's sitting here that growing you know stratospherically and if not then what's the play so we see things like um scalable capital suddenly you know they're not nutmeg so they make their deal with ing and away they go and so is this loot uh, an rbs being a bit of a, a sort of a pairing that actually RBS has great distribution. Oh, totally. Uh, and Loot's not a Monzo, Starling, Revolut, N26, you know, I mean, you, the brand you go down is the basically list. where, what, who, what? Yeah. I, I had to Google them before this show. That's my embarrassingness. I, I think it's an interesting point you make about the the percentage rather than like outright just buying them. Because I, I think this, maybe this is this model maturing a little bit. You know, we've seen big organizations buy a thing and break it really quickly. But actually, maybe at 25% stake, they can uh, they can bankroll what they think is the seed of a good idea without to like smashing it up, basically. You know? There's no reason why loot couldn't become a feature in Bow. Um, I, I, there's, I don't, there's no reason why it can't be absorbed. Yeah, I, I don't think we know what Bo is. I think to, to almost to Simon's point, I tried googling it, but I didn't know how to type that funny character. It, <laughs> but it's it's an it's an interesting one that. Like you say, if you're starting a startup, the first thing you don't do is buy another startup, which is interesting to sort of see uh, a, a fully bankrolled, not just because they're bank, but a you know a bank bankrolled uh, company making that as their first public step. You know, sorry. Yeah, I'm just trying to flip it around and a bit and, and relate to you know why would I want to sell 25 percent to a bank if I was loot? And and to your point, do they have a business model? Uh, or is the only game to really reach scale and then, you know, preach that you can eventually get to a business model? And I think that that might be what they're trying desperately to do here is to see, can we find some distribution here? 
Well, a good business model is selling the company, I guess, right? <laughs> Could be, yeah. Well, let's hope for the founders of Loot that there's a lovely clause where when they hit a certain target, um, the re- there's a trigger point for, a, you know, a more meaty, substantive real acquisition because this doesn't really provide any liquidity for the founders, I'd imagine, or the investors. And in many ways, it's like, you know, it's, that's, that's what's disappointing. I guess uh, as a VC and a former entrepreneur, I want to see our big banks actually having meaningful actions on entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial community. And so this feels, you know, a bit like, you know, no, it's nice they're involved, but come on, go all in. The VC says go all in. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to the next one then. So next up, we've got Google's Irish Christmas present. So this is a fun one. So this is from the Irish Times. Uh, Google gets go ahead for central bank for payments, which um, sounds all terrifying, doesn't it? But uh, Google have been authorized as a payments institution in the Republic of Ireland after the central bank granted authorization to Google Payment Ireland under PSD2 regulations, which is way harder to say than you think it would be. Um, having <laughs> obtained authorization, the company will be allowed to issue and acquire payments across the European Union under passporting rights. So, uh, like, have all of the mainstream banks just been freaking out since the 26th of December? Because, like, this is what they were warned about, or is this just nothing to worry about? Well, I I don't know exactly what authorization they got. Are they a payment initiation service provider or an e-money um, provider? I don't know. I think they were already an e-money provider, right? I don't think they've had e-money. So Facebook had e-money licenses, but I think Google, I think this is the first because time. Because you can email money in Gmail. You can go to Gmail and click the pound sign and add money to your Gmail payment. So it depends on the jurisdiction where your account was. First. And it's, uh, I'm and hoping beyond the money. hope. I'm hoping beyond hope that this is Google who's going to do a, a Google money uh, you know, interface. Hey, look, they they organize the world's information. That's their their thing. And if PSD2 really does give access to, to people to that level of information, we've got Google Maps, we've got Gmail. Why don't we have Google Money in which to they do an amazing interface that organizes the world's information? Amazing ad platform. Jesus, that, that would be, you know, crazy for them. And I'd be very surprised if they're not uh, not exploring that internally. If they're not, Google, call me. but but it's it's that thing where everybody's been saying like you know facebook and google and these guys will never get into this space because if they don't want to get bothered and tied down with all the regulation but like they did it and they sort of can now right so do do you guys think this is the first step that they will actually start getting a little bit more into the battlefield i think they are in the battlefield right now that's how i consider it um they need a e-money license to hold the money of their clients and i think uh, with, with with Google Pay, you know, they, they have an amazing opportunity to actually hold on to the money for a while. And, you know, if they get into the e-money, eventually maybe into the banking, you know, they can deploy that money towards the consumers, maybe, you know, do something on the credit side, et cetera. I think it's it's an obvious move for them. But it's also a different, it's a different way to operate your business because now you're based on regulation and compliance and so forth. So it's very different. And we all know Google love adhering to rules and regulations. Um, you know, again, um, I, I think it's really awesome because the reality is that as much your point around payments, I mean, payments are fundamentally the gateway drug to, uh, to any form of like real financial service. And they're already there. And of course, they're planning stuff. But um, a part of me thinks that I know it sounds weird. I just don't. I personally wouldn't trust Google with my money or giving them my information on my, on my thing. Who are they going to give it to? What are they going to do? They're actually going to be clever with it. They're actually going to use it, use it in smart ways. It's like the same reason why Google Health wasn't really, you know, if I remember correctly, it ended up being pulled. Um, it's this whole no, idea of Google Health's actually deep mind health has now become Google Health again. So they're, they're 
they're in on it. They, they, um, they yeah, re- the, rebranded yeah. and came back at you. That's what they did. <laughs> uh, yes, the joy of the ethical things of Google saying one thing to you and then lying later. Um, That's what you really think about Google. <laughs> I, I, I mean, at the point where they took off Don't Be Evil, I, I'm just being paranoid in a sense, really. <laughs> but I think that there's a, an expectation that the, the banks had, to your point, David, that um, surely all of those giants that we're afraid of would hold off from taking on the regulatory burden that the average bank has, and they have, because there's no reason to acquire that same type of complexity. They're just picking and choosing the types of regulation that will allow them, to your point, yeah, but to capture the lateral value of whatever they do. So in that sense, this move should not have surprised absolutely anyone, and we will see them cherry-picking this type of standalone regulatory cover to capture the the value. And I think you're, you're raising a valid concern around what are they going to do with the data? They're actually going to be smart about it. But the reality is you're not a representative voice. Most people will just go for the convenience and ease on and smarts of whatever it is they're going to be offered and willingly give up that data, which is a recurring problem. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's similar to many if if they good service is offered, I think many people would would move to it. In fact, actually, the, the next story in this is very much sort of tying into that basis. So a study from, and this is a a story over in FinTech Finance, says two thirds of financial decision makers believe that tech giants will offer retail banking in the next five years, which is reasonably sort of on the money for what we're sort of talking about. I thought interestingly, a third of all of the respondents, so 34%, just over a third, um, think traditional banks as we know them will effectively cease to exist by 2023, which sounds rather alarming in terms like got Simon nodding along here. Yeah, I mean, branch banking is is on its way out it's dead I, I, I mean there's a segment of the population who want to keep branch banking for the rest of their lives but that's not a growing segment um but banking means different things to different people yeah it's a it is a, an interesting one i do find a lot of these the the sort of terminology around these things in terms of like open banking and stuff still feels like it's a bit of an, a, a misnomer when they're everybody getting scared that nobody knows what open banking is and that type of side of things but what do you do you think that's a a problem, or do you think similar to the conversation from a if Google do something that's exceptional in a service perspective that nobody actually needs to know what open banking is? Do you know I always think open banking's like the winter war that preceded the second world war. Like a lot of people are moving forces into the right place, and a lot of people are like lining guns up in the right direction, but no one's really shooting yet. Uh, but I think it's been twelve months now, and I think we're about to like a lot of things are about to break cover. Um, you see a lot of the big banks now starting to consume each other's APIs. Um, payment initiation is starting to become actually really useful and companies that, um, especially financial services companies, are starting to actually really look at payment initiation. Everyone's pretty sure where they stand on the um, variable repeating payments question um, and whether they can charge for that or not. And so a lot of things are starting to like settle down ready for an actual, an actual fight now. So mm. I think it's about to get interesting. Well, we should say it's, um, and actually, as the next story says as well, it's over on Bloomberg. It is like nearly a year anniversary of open banking, right? So we need to sort of blow out some candles and wish happy, like, we're all going to sing happy birthday right now, Laura, is that Uh, happening? No, 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 that's not So, um, but the story around that is that (laughs) logging into your bank account is now a three billion pound business. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of impressive, really. So we've got um, a story here of a $200 million deal that uh, Plaid is buying Kuovo. Is that how it's said? They're an aggregator. And I think probably the reason they're so 
highly valued in the US is because the US doesn't have open banking. So the delta between what you can get um, through regulated API access and the, the, the obvious pent-up demand for API access to bank accounts is greater in the US, perhaps, than it is over here. Yeah, banking is definitely not open in the US as it stands in this this, this way, shape, or form at all, is it? And I, and I guess uh, Yodely has probably been one of these companies who've been mm-hmm. pretty much ahead trying to do that from a screenscaping perspective. But actually, if they've started to get stuff that does it in a more uh, standardized manner then, or probably in a more secure manner as well, then actually that makes a lot of sense. Someone distract the VC while I am about to say the next thing, cover your ears or something. But, uh, Is it a secret? It's not a secret. It's just um, I always find it um, slightly misleading when the transactional pieces and the valuations and the investments are translated into the value of the business. Because one of the things that has been extremely interesting and either disappointing or validating, depending on where you stood on the whole open banking thing, is that it hasn't been terribly exciting over the past year, mostly because people haven't worked out how to make money. They've barricaded themselves and readied themselves to your very apt metaphor uh, for the conflict and the loss. But while waiting for someone to work it out to mostly play defense. And we haven't seen anyone really go creative on how they're going to make money. Um, I'm <clears throat> probably being a bit cynical here. No way. Shock. <laughs> uh, I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> VC cynical never. Um, no, but the, there's an element of open banking. Um, and a lot of this stuff comes down to, um, when I've been speaking to our early stage startups who've been playing around with open banking, there is this fear and fear within customers like, Oh, I'm giving my data. Oh, I'm going across. And historically, you're absolutely right. People have just trusted the product that works. But I think we're getting, customers are getting way more mature and way more sophisticated about it. And I honestly think there is nothing, A, particularly exciting with open banking that's made me go, oh, yeah, I really want to go and do that. And B, there's automatic apprehension of like, wait a second, I'm going to give this data on my money. And it's my money. It's like, it's the closest thing to my health records right? My email, who gives a crap? Let's be quite frank and honest, you know. Well, hey, I'm buying clothes from an online retailer. Oh, here's my Mr. Porter order. That's kind of useful for advertisers, but does it really affect me? No. I'm building a profile on you and then <laughs> Mr. Porter. I, and, yeah. I would argue your email is actually far more uh, insightful into your life than your bank account balance. But, but my bank account has more of an impact on people knowing. So it affects my mortgage ability, my credit stuff. That to me is stuff that is much more personal. I've had years of grooming to tell me, manage my credit. Don't spend too much. Always make your payments on time. You know, all sure. this kind of and stuff. And so, if you apply machine learning to people's bank accounts, then you can do correlations. Like, you know, occasionally I like to drink at three o'clock in the morning at a, at a pub called The Dolphin, which is probably strongly correlated with um, other behaviors that don't make me a good credit risk. You know? Well, maybe it's like flipping out. Dolphin flip out. <laughs> hey! I think there is something there, though, around this, around open banking and it being very much like any cycle of new technology. People just don't know what to do with it for a start. So they do the obvious things. And banks think about banking. And so, oh, we can connect other people's accounts. Aggregation, everyone wants that. And suddenly you're myopically viewing aggregation as the be all and end all. But actually, that just really, for most people, doesn't give the value that then balances against that fear of connecting it all up. 
So I think we're in this we're in this space where you've invented a new technology and we're still trying to find that killer use case, which for me, you know, are are those end-to-end journeys. It's about getting outside of the banking app. It's about connecting things together so that actually I don't have to now stop what I'm doing here to go to my bank to then come back. You know, whether it's borrowing money, whether it's looking at whether I can afford something, whether it's a whole, whether it's proving my identity, whether it's uh, inc- uh, bringing rewards in, there are all kinds of sort of tangential areas where value is really created, and hardly any of them relate directly to the banking app. So I think that there's something interesting there that uh, I'm waiting to see. You know, those first end-to-end journeys that really make sense that use open banking rather than banks just thinking, let's bring lots of these accounts together and show them all on one screen and everyone goes, meh. This reminds me of, of a saying I had heard, which is like, robotics are here, robots are here, but when it works, you don't call it a robot, you call it a toaster or you call it a self-driving car. Like, I think open banking is going to be like that as well. Mm. The use cases that come and exist will be like, oh, like, you know, I don't need to print out my bank statements and take them to my real estate agent to prove my identity anymore. You'd just be like, oh, I just logged in with my bank. But you won't think of it as open banking because it'll just be that thing that works now that used to be a pain in the ass. Totally agree. We, we often talk to clients about Uber being a great API business. And they're like, what? Because it's a seamless end-to-end journey of being chauffeured around where the Uber app is talking via APIs to the phone for geolocation, to Google Maps for the location, to an internal API set for the cars, and then to Braintree for the payments. Now, would, would, would the person on the street describe that as an API business? No, but it underlies a seamless end-to-end journey. So it's like, I think... I think it's that getting out of the bank and into uh, and integrating finance into other things, and those other places are not really keeping their eyes on open banking APIs, and the people who are doing banks are not really keeping eyes on those end-to-end journeys. So we've not really seen those those things take hold, but I, I think that's where it where it heads. I completely agree with that. I think it's like the combustion engine. Like I have no idea how that works, but when I press the press the pedal, like the car goes forward, right? And it's it's that mentality. My mum's never going to know what an API and open banking is, but if you make a life a little bit easier, it'll work. So, um, for you guys at home, um, you can have a, a listen now to uh, the 11FS open banking expert Adam Davies to give us a little bit more insight into the significance of actually this partnership. So this is an interesting one, and as much as it potentially expands the services that Plaid can offer, it also gives a nod to the wider debate going on in the US about the adoption of APIs as a means of facilitating access to customers' accounts versus the age-old art of screen scraping. So now, in terms of the acquisition, it means that customers using a service that is powered by Plaid should be able to access their data from both their retail accounts and now their investment accounts, as long as their underlying providers are signed up. So the services between Quovo and Plaid are really, really complementary. What Plaid offer up are an APIs that can get a snapshot of balances, uh, let's say in real time, transaction histories going back whatever X months, and basic info to help with identity management. Quovo comes in with a suite of services, including ready-to-go aggregation services and PFM offerings. And if you think about meshing the two together across both wealth and retail, you can start imagining the possibilities. Now, one appealing aspect for Plaid in this is that Quovo's reach is pretty extensive. So they claim to be able to connect to the accounts of over 14,000 institutions across predominantly the US, but also Canada and the UK. 
The last stat brings up the other interesting angle I wanted to raise, which is Quovo became in October the first US-based company to register with open banking in the UK, um, for which they had to open an office here. And I've sort of put office in inverted commas. But this means that their API suite is obviously up to scratch and can meet the API standards that OB requires here in the UK and thus in Europe. However, pose yourself this question. How ready are banking institutions up and down the US to receive API-based solutions, considering this is an environment, remember, where there is currently no open banking equivalent. There's been a lot of talk over the past couple of years around the lengths that open banking or PSD2 will outlaw or allow screen scraping. And Zach Perrett, who is the co-founder of Played, has waded into the debate before by saying, banning screen scraping is like banning mail because email exists, adding that it would disadvantage regional and community banks in the US if it was done. I mention this primarily to highlight some of the challenges that third-party providers and API pioneers have when trying to implement a solution faster than a market can adopt. And it'll be interesting to see how much further reach this new type can have when, let's say, an open banking equivalent might hit the States, as it recently has done in Australia. Thank you very much, Adam. All right, moving on. So we have a story over in Finextra. So this is Starling's post-Brexit passport. So Starling is off to France and Germany in a European sort of world dominance type vibe going on, which is good. So with Brexit on the horizon, UK challenger bank Starling is setting up an Irish subsidiary. Seems Google Starling, everybody's going off to Ireland, which is nice. Um, that will allow them to move into European markets, uh, beginning with France and Germany. Seems just sort of like prudent uh, planning in terms of their vibe, right? You know, this is just in the same way as everybody's planning from a Brexit perspective. We don't know what's going to happen. Put your, get your house in order. Leader's waving at me. Go. <laughs> I think the, um, this is like the, the move that surprised no one, right? It's both good business, but also Ireland has been on the horizon for the last two years. It was publicly talked about. Figuratively it was, and literally. Well, no, as in Ireland existed <laughs> when also for Starling and their expansion plans. Moving into Ireland has been publicly talked about for a very long time. And, and if anything, the question is, what, what took you so long? Um, everyone's moving to Ireland, David. But are we going to see more and more organizations sort of come out with this type of thing in order to just hedge bets or... I think if this is due to Brexit, they are in a in a hurry, uh, big time. Um, I don't know how much business Starling actually has outside of the UK, but if they have any business and if they're trying to safeguard it, wait, they have much business in the UK? Wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're, you're you're fun. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't think they have any business outside of the UK no, right now. I think this is this is not to safeguard Brexit. This is probably just to get ready for, I mean, let's for be expansion honest, after Brexit. Let's be honest. All this Brexit chat right now, planning for Brexit three months beforehand. Yeah, it, you know, you're doing a worse job than the UK government of planning for Brexit. Let's be quite frank and you honest. You don't know what type of Brexit to plan for. That's the problem. <laughs> plan for every. It Brexit. is. It's like, is it going to be a hot day? Is it going to be a cold day? Do I take a scarf? Do we move to France? That type of thing. But I mean, Starling's been interesting in the last sort of couple of years of diversifying. They haven't quite pivoted, but they have expanded their their reach. You know, there's the banking platform stuff. There's the deal they did with the um, uh, UK DWP, UK, yeah. UK government. So there's suddenly payment systems. There's this deal that they've done with RBS around something in the back end there. There's, uh, you know, an announcement of an island. There's business accounts. There's a real sort of spread there of, of offerings. I mean, from the outside, Starling is the bank that's like, why the f- is it not bigger? 
That's the one thing I'm looking yes, at. I can't believe I'm defending Starling. You've got me <laughs> in the corner here. No, I'm just like, why are they not big? They do, they do a lot of right things. That's the thing. They've got 400,000 customers now, which isn't terrible. True. Can't believe I just said that. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, do not cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I agree there. I, th- I think they are doing an amazing amount of things. It is interesting that they haven't acquired as many customers from a retail perspective as some of the competitors, naming their names. But so it's, it is interesting, though, that they've maybe spent less time worrying about acquiring retail customers and actually gone after some of the other things, as you say, Jason. So um, it, it, time will tell what strategy really sort of works out, right? I mean, in, in many ways, are they like, dare I say, if you look at, uh, if you, if you hop back to TransferWise, one of the biggest things they did right was get international banking relationships in a way that no other fintech company had done before. And then they pivoted from you know, well, not pivoted, but they had uh, they brought out the the multi currency banking system, which is just a phenomenal thing. In many ways, I suspect Anne has a very smart plan hidden up her sleeve, uh, which doesn't necessarily involve uh, retail banking as we know it. If that makes sense, well, she was or she's also building an, or she's building infrastructure to sell on. Well, she was also head of transaction banking at uh, ABN Amro, ah. so she's you know she's also done all of that international stuff. From everything from retail all the way up to corporate and transaction banking over, you know, decades of experience of doing this. So if there's anyone who knows that market and all of the, the places in which you could, Build you could the get in, um, then it's definitely Anne. I, I've, I've said it, I've said it before on this podcast and I'll say it again. I reckon Starling will sell in, I said three years. So that was four months ago. So like within the next two and a half years, let's say, I reckon a really big global bank will buy, will buy Starling outright. And if so you for the purposes of, of keeping you honest, we're going to have to have an update every few months yeah. on the show. <laughs> Seven months left on the clock, uh, maybe, maybe we get Anne on and you can, yes. you can have a chat to her about it. Oh, all right. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but from a, looking at it from a VC's point of view, it she, looks like that's the textbook play she's making. She's building the infrastructure, gearing it up for sale mm. for somebody with a big brand. Yep. And I bloody well hope she's successful at it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what it looks like. And actually... Could that then be, you know, if you look at a city or a HSBC or somebody like that scale, could that be the savior of those things in that way? Well, you know? It starts I, to get really interesting for the market. Let's, let's hypothesize. Say HSBC buys Starling yeah. and, or, and then suddenly rolls that out globally or at least through Europe. Um, that starts to be quite interesting because they, you know, they do have pretty good sort of uh, engineering team, you know, set up. Suddenly that supercharges a lot of that um, that world. Or that's actually the most boring acquisition possible. It wouldn't be so much sexier if Sky or Vodafone Ooh, yeah. or Ooh. even, you know, or dare I say it, the Google. Google. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, my point being is that these are, these are Insta banks for anybody who has a large audience base whose main business is finance. Dare I say, Uber, I keep, everybody says I'm an idiot, but Uber is a fintech company. All they do is process payments, right? Um, you can swear properly. <laughs> oh. don't, so that, don't tell him. <laughs> Damn it! What have you done? <laughs> You've unleashed the beast. Um, no, but that's my whole point. Yeah. It's like, it'd be way sexier if somebody who has a huge audience reach, who has these relationships with customers, and that they have to do a lot of payment transactions, and they get involved in more such a way. And then we can talk, see our, this is when the 2023 thing kicks yeah. in. Yeah, we've seen Telefonica we in Germany uh, do a bank. We've seen Orange in, Orange I think, Spain. Yeah. It's like we've only been doing it years. In emerging, in emerging yeah. markets. I mean, let's be quite frank and honest. The innovation model is not going to come from here, uh, here in the West. It's going to come from outside. So, Well, in that case, do you think it will be Uber or do you think it will be somebody like Grab? 
You know, is this like more of a somebody going and buying something like that to move this? Like, would uh, Alibaba or Alipay be worse than going and buying Starling to roll out a bank across Europe? Um, maybe not. I mean, like the one thing. Um, so uh, there were two. Sorry, maybe let me make sure I understood. You're saying Alipay to buy Starling. Yeah. Um, well, I think Alipay wouldn't need to buy Starling. They've already got a brand that's probably bigger and more understood and more recognized than Starling. But then they have and all the also, access, right? They, the, you know, similar to Google getting into yeah. having an e-money license, suddenly they've got the ability to do pretty much all of the financial services products that they want True. to across the entirety of Europe. Definitely. It's, it's a definite possibility. But that said, knowing companies like Alibaba and companies from that part of the world, they would rather build their own rather than buy out. Hence why I suspect it's going to be more like to be a Western company that buys it to mimic a model that's worked in non-Western markets. I think you're definitely onto something there in the sense that Alibaba will wouldn't need either the unlocking of the market because they have their own ways of, of breaking markets open. and they Well, wouldn't... they've just got a fuck ton of capital. Let's be well, quite frank. Honest. There's a lot you can do when you have that sort of They also have an aggressive strategy that works. Yeah. And they didn't always have capital. So we have to acknowledge that they've, they've done some things very right. Uh, amazing. But they so. also build their own infrastructure in a way that makes sense. They don't need the explaining in that. Whereas quite a lot of the other giants you, you've talked about would actually benefit from someone who understands how the plumbing and banking works 100%. and has ready-made infrastructure. So, you know, you get like a, a commemorative Fintech Insider t-shirt if it ends up that you were right. And you come back to brag <laughs> and do a victory lap. Wow, that's that's like commemorative swag. With, <laughs> with, with, I was right. What, yeah. what is this victory lap? Like, where is it round? We're going to, there's going to be glitter. It's going to be amazing. Good. I was right. Unicorns. I want glitters. I want unicorns. And, you know, I want my own pogo stick as well. You have come to the right place. <laughs> All right. Well, on that terrifying note, it's time for a bit of a break. And we'll be back very shortly. How can Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university? It must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. All right, on with the show. So we asked you guys to start submitting some questions for us, and you have delivered upon that. So thank you very, very much. Uh, we're kicking this off with a bit of a heavy hitter, and actually three-in-one questions. So Matt Siegel, who is from Microsoft, you're a greedy young man. 
Um, so the question that came up first was, have regional banks been held back in terms of innovation due to their geographical hold on their regions and general inertia of coming to shift? So do we think that generally that we're seeing regional banks being held back by just being in their geography? Jane, Lido, what do you think? Um, I, I think that's a very kind way of asking the question. I think every bank has been held up and held back by a hope that what they have is theirs to keep in a very generic way. And regional banks have felt shielded, uh, particularly in North America, so US, Canada, um, have felt shielded from the competition because they have a particular type of relationship. I don't think it's actually their geographic hold on their regions. Yeah, I think it's more the perception of that hold and the very specific type of competition um, but actually, the minute the individuals start thinking about banking differently, then the fact that your regional becomes profoundly irrelevant and what you thought was your differentiator goes out the window. Uh, I think it's, um, I assume this is about the US. You know, you've got, was it 5,000 banks, 6,500 credit unions, something like that. One way or another, it's going to be a bloodbath in the, uh, in the US because everyone's got their two or three savings and loan branches. And you know, Laurel, Doris, or, you know, who you go and, Get, and you get your checkbook and you do your thing. Like we're going to have a, a very quick uh, problem there, uh, and and those players they're mostly small. So they and they are not technology. And they who does their technology? They probably have outsourced it from some core banking provider that then you know changes something every so often. So that's a that's a tough space to be in, or it's an amazing space to be in because if with the right person in charge at one of those places taking a startup approach, getting a bit of investment, you know, the US is is quite an interesting place. Um, but what I think is really interesting is that when we think of the US, we keep thinking of San Francisco and New York. We don't think about most of the country, like 80% of the country. And the joy of that is that in those parts of the world, they are much more community-centric. There is still much more close-knit relations. And so the argument that um, they're going to struggle. I would actually argue, I'm, I'm more on the positive side. Shock! I'm what? positive. Oh, I know. Second half, he's what back. What happened to him during the break? <laughs> you're not cynical, you're just contrary. No, but like, they have these relationships. They've got this great opportunity. It's close, tight-knit. It's one of the things that legacy banks are always going to be great at doing uh, in these tight-knit communities. American banks are the new blockbuster stores. Wow. Ooh. And Netflix is coming. I'm with the pilot. Oh. <laughs> wow, that chills there, Simon. So I, I think it's I think it's a really interesting one. We've got Chase, we've got Bank of America, we've got Wells Fargo, really big, slow-moving, lumbering giants across across the US. And then we've got all of these small players that theoretically, if they started doing interesting things, are challenger banks in their own right, right? You know, they are, they're not huge in terms of like either the balance sheet or in terms of the customers that they've got. So to your point, Jason, if they got together and actually did interesting things, and we've seen maybe in the Canadian market, we've seen uh, Canadian smaller community banks get together and uh, use shared infrastructure to start doing interesting things, they could take on some of the giants. What do you guys think? So I'm from Denmark. It's, it's a tiny country, right? So 5 million people. We have 200 banks in Denmark. So they're basically like three big ones and then tons of tiny ones. Could I imagine one of the tiny ones like coming together and turning themselves into a startup? I think it's very hard. I mean, they have such an old school, old people, traditional thinking. It's such a long way. 
would, would I imagine buying one of them to like leverage their license? Oof, there would be so much to clean up. I would rather go through the process myself. In some ways, um, kind of conflating the, the two very different answers to the question, which is what has held them back and what is the opportunity? And I think all banks, no matter where they are and what, no matter what their size is, had a particular business model and the belief that they are entitled to holding on to most of that is what has held them back historically. And those regional banks are like, this is my turf and, and people love me for being local but, and a challenger won't be local. But they are being passed down from right now from the older generation to the younger generation, often to their children. And their children are more tech savvy. They are have open minds. And that's yeah, they why have I Venmo think- as well. Oh, I, I agree. People. I am not saying it's right. I'm saying it is what has historically held them back. So that's the second bit of the question, which is what's the opportunity and are they waking up to it? And I, I believe and we're seeing it with the work we're doing and the work that's coming our way, that they're definitely waking up to it. The challenge, the prize might be smaller potentially because they want to retain that identity, but the challenges are identical to the ones that the big incumbents faced a few years ago. I think it's if they differentiate on service or if they're purely trying to differentiate on product, right? And we've seen uh, examples of this. So there's a lady called Jill Castilla, who's the CEO of Citizen Edmund Bank, who is possibly one of the most evangelical uh, CEOs I've ever come across for customer experience and customer service. And it's not that she, uh, and we've seen this in um, Umqua Bank as well. You know, there's various different areas of organizations that will do things to create differentiated experiences that the massive organizations just won't be able to do uh, in that state. But but it's that, it's that fight, that fight, that false dichotomy between human service and cold digitized offering. You know, traditionally we've seen, oh, actually, if you really want that personalized thing, then it's a person to person thing. And if you want to digitize what you've got before, then that's just banking without a person involved. And it's very cold. But we've seen with Monzo, like number one in the UK for service, Knox, fin- you know, um, first, direct. first direct off of the, they the haven't leaderboard. They have running their ads though. Have they not? No. <laughs> um, We've seen no, that actually the, the best digital is more human than the best branch experience. Yeah, you can get great service through an asynchronous chat app because you're not waiting on hold to talk to somebody. You're not listening to terrible music on a 30-second loop. You just like type your question and then you go about your life and then somebody magically comes and gives you the correct answer or solves your problem. That is better service. C- combined with that empathetic product design of actually – uh, the algorithm knows you and will therefore point out things that are better for you rather than some anonymous, but very pleasant uh, cashier who's then there kind of solving your problems. So I think we're going to see this transition between digitized banking of just this cold transactional thing and then something that delivers a human level of service way beyond what you get from a cashier, which takes that dichotomy away. But what I find fascinating is when you break these sectors down, um, you, you, you both, you're, you're saying it's a dichotomy. I think there's actually a third middle ground, which is where, um, there's probably more of the value to be created for fintech, for, for finance companies or uh, banks in general, because the automated human service stuff I get from Monzo is fine. It's great. But when you are slightly higher wealth, uh, than average. So you earn, you're in the, uh, top, uh, quartile of income. All oh, right. Fancy man. You heard him, ladies. <laughs> he would be giving out his contact details at the end of the show. <laughs> Hypothetically. So, so when, you're, when you're a rich dude, right? <laughs> yeah. When you're rolling in it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Feces. Sorry, go on. You can't get away with it as an exited founder, right? You can't say you're poor anymore. This is annoying. I'm impoverished, everybody. You can't buy my crows at Primark still. On us. Go on. Sorry. Um, Point being is there's this middle ground, not the super high net worth, but the higher value sectors where you banks are already willing to spend money on relationships. My parents get all sorts of delights from Lloyd's Banking Group. Uh, today, they have the somebody, you know, they spend time on them. And in these parts of America, you will have these people spending time. And I think what's going to be really interesting is when they take the knowledge that's being captured from the staff and integrating that into the digital proposition, and then we're getting much more tailored stuff. We're getting for this higher end value market segment that isn't so high, you want private banking grade service, but high enough that they're like, I'm special. I make over six figures or I have savings no, no, of over I, six figures. I, I totally agree. We've seen, we've seen technology. We've seen digital being used to drive the cost down that actually, okay, I just get this, uh, this. A cashier called Doris who looks after me, she's expensive, an algorithm would be a lot cheaper. But what about private banking for the mass market? Because ultimately, you take the team of people that look after Rihanna and say, rather than it being this team of 10, we can look after Sarah. And she stacks shelves, but she's going to, uh, uh, in some way, get this facsimile of a feeling of, a, of an entire group looking after her, her finances. And Combine when the- that with the relationship and some kind of physical thing, and it is a, it's, it um, collapses that market from I have to have millions to bank with coots down to, you know, I can't get a bank account because no one will, will bank me. Man, I, I can see that. So, like, bank like Rihanna is already a marketing thing. <laughs> Hashtag is, already trending. We call, we call the whole thing, bitch better have my money. <laughs> like, I, like I've, this is an idea. We've just given away gold here, Jason. I, I think Rihanna we've just got the title of the episode. <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess the other part of the question really was, um, do we think that they've been held back a little bit in terms of the sort of stranglehold that they've got on that geography? You know, is there a, a bit of a, you know, they're not going to be immune to the weird strain of flu that if a fintech player or another organization kind of comes in that they're not really prepared for a new fight? What, what do you guys think on that side? I think that's what we see. Totally. Because they've been so small, so local and yet having such a wide offering. And they're locked into it because mm. their customers expect that. So, does, so that, does that make it an easy picking for people to kind of come into those markets? I believe so. If you're niche and you have a budget for innovating on that niche, mm. it's super easy. Yeah. Right. And you can, you can, you can argue that that investment is worth it because you can take it international. Why are we using such, like, they're not puppies. Why are we using this language of they're being, oh, they're held back. Oh, it's like they are banks with high high profitability stakes and their margins tend to be much healthier than the universal banks because actually they they have a stranglehold of their market and they kill things that don't make money and they 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 do this thing and they do it well and we're are you like we're, we're like being nice to murder well no, no not at all but like i am like well when i was a banker nobody went oh <laughs> we don't have that degree of Oh my God, they're held back. That's so sad. When we're looking at the, at the big incumbents, I don't see this as any different. Uh, I think it's more complacency than something that happened to them. And it's complacency that is entirely human and understandable and exactly what happened to the universal global banks. And we know that they've been through a cycle with varying degrees of success and grace. Yeah. It is exactly what we're going to see with those banks. But I think their size and, and, and local nature doesn't make them any more deserving of the, of the puppy tone. Yeah. I, th- I think though there is a, a, 
entirely more human nature to community banks in the US in terms of where they're at. And actually, they haven't really gone through digitization, let alone kind of really sort of digital services yet in terms of kind of where they're at. So many of them are like, you know, Hank on the corner type. And actually, so the relationship is still human to human, really just facilitated by some terrible technology in the back end type thing. So so I think there is an altogether more sort of human story to that one in terms of where it goes. Anyway, we better move on, but hopefully that answered that particular question. Um, second up that he had was, is the model of growing through bank acquisitions ending or dead? So is the old M&A model of just acquiring a credit card company and strapping it onto the thing that you've already got, like you know Lloyds Banking Group or RBS, NatWest, et cetera, have sort of done in the past. Do we think that's the model that's dying? Or do you think actually everybody's going to a, we're smart, so smart, we can build it ourselves? Well, I think with these bloodbaths of different markets suddenly having massive pressures, you're going to have people who just have unsustainable businesses. Hmm. And what do you do with a portfolio of however many clients? Like in some way, you're going to have to try and monetize that. If you're unsustainable, someone else will be sustainable and someone will come, up, come along and offer you some, some money for it. Um, this is actually a really, really simplistic, boring question uh, from the point of view of... You have uh, been so nice for so long. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's not a bad question to ask, but it's it's simplistic in as much as banks fundamentally are cold, calculated financial engineering machines. Duh. Um, <laughs> and so the acquisitions have almost always been at the big end. It's all about bums on seats. And at the other side, it's does it look sexy to our shareholders? And does it and, you know, very rarely is it actually a, oh, let's do this acquisition because they have a capability we need. You know, that's, you know, as much as I would like as a VC, that's be more often the case. It never bloody is. Come on, banks, spend your open your wallets and buy real stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> bottom line is they're just doing very cold, hard user calculations. Can they do it? Uh, Lloyd's MBNA is a great example, of, a, a great example of that. Lloyd's can more profitably run a UK business than Bank of America can. Shock! So can we change the question maybe and say, is the model for growth acquisitions? Because it's not going to necessarily be banks. I think you're That's right there. The but we have seen just too many companies in this space for the market, even globally, to sustain. We hear multiple people saying the same thing on this on this show. We all agree that currently the number of registered fintech companies is just not sustainable. Mergers, acquisitions are already happening. If you remove the word bank from there... Then you actually, makes... the answer is a resounding yes. Hell yeah. And whether that will lead the way for the banks that are more with it to emulate the model and go, well, you know what, that thing works, but it won't scale without me. Boom. So the, the last part of Matt's, uh, Matt's question was really the flip of that to a certain degree. So are we going to see some of the fintechs coming in and buying some of those community banks as a way of jumping in through either the, the regulatory space to, to, to do this? Uh, I'm looking at some. Yeah. I have a strong opinion on that. I would rather go through the pain of taking a bank license than cleaning up a legacy company, for sure, no doubt. And is that? Uh, do you think because of the uh, access to the license, or is it because of the treacle to get to the license and all of the the people, the technology, and everything that goes with it? I mean, access to the license is hard, but it's not that hard. And what would I do with a bank with 100 years of history and an organization and loans and branches, liabilities? And I mean, it's I wouldn't know where to start. Sure. So uh, almost buying an asset that actually only 3% of it you actually need is probably not the answer if you're trying to get into a geography. Unless there is something else to it. Unless you need but, the customer base. Yeah. Tandem bought Harrods Bank. 
I was thinking that, but do we have any other examples? Because that's the only one I can think of. But I'm, and I'm not sure that's the answer to anything. So like, because yes, they did. But to, to your point that actually they didn't really want that customer base. They didn't really want that brand, did they? They just surely so got did a it. simultaneous investment of whatever it was. Yeah. So you know, it, I think there's more to that. It, to it's that air story. quotes on board, isn't it? It really is. But it's, um, yeah, very specific sort of... Uh, I, I do think it brings up an interesting question of, though, uh, around acquisition. You know, is this capability? Is it license? Is it customers? Is it talent? And actually, people buy other companies for a variety of reasons. And uh, and I could see, a, a, see a, a few of those playing out in different markets, depending on what, what you're looking for. Also, I found the question um, interesting in the word of, um, not tomorrow, but profitable fintechs? Profit? <laughs> what? What the hell? Sorry. Um, I like this guy. Can we keep him? <laughs> As a VC, you wouldn't know about profit, I guess. So, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Touche, touche. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much for Matt for the questions. And don't forget, you guys can submit your own questions to podcast at 11fs.com or jump on Twitter and fire some stuff at us there. All right. Back to the news. So uh, for the second part of the news, first story up, we have U.S. goes contactless. So this is at last a story over there on the FT. The U.S. banks are introducing contactless payments. What do you reckon they're going to still make us sign when we use contactless, aren't they? Uh, it'll be like um, wave your card and you also you need to sign. Yeah. <laughs> I've experienced this. Yeah. Every time I use contactless in New York, last time I was over there, they still made me sign for it. Even when I protested that it was pointless, apparently that's not a good idea. One of my friends went to New York and paid contactlessly with a Monzo card in a gap. And the gap um, person freaked out and was like, oh my God, you've got Apple Pay in your card? (laughs) (laughs) So I I I can't point pointing out that my card actually didn't have a signature on it but they would still make me sign for it and it would yeah apparently arguing with them is not the way to go so i mean it's just like what you're used to i mean i remember my father being you know my father's a wise educated learned man uh but he was still scared witless when i went to prep and paid for a sandwich with my contactless card <laughs> like witchcraft <laughs> basically yeah i mean and so i mean to you know i mean that poor gap Gap retail uh, employee. It's like, yeah, I mean, they've never seen anything like this before, and um, I. Th- but that's the issue, right? Come on, America, get with the program. I yeah. can't get excited that they finally thought the future. Hey, might and as well contactless accept it. Is so great, like we forget about it all the time. Mm. It's only when you start to compare contactless to queuing up to get cash from an ATM or scanning a QR code like WeChat or Alipay or any other form of payment, even like with like, you know, Apple Pay and Google Pay, you've got to get your phone out and unlock it. And then there's like, you know, you've got to wait for it to like recognize your face. But contactless, you take a small rectangle of plastic and wave it at the other plastic and it works perfectly. Yeah. It's the best form of payment ever invented. So uh, according to a uh, study by uh, A.T. Kearney, so the U.S. is only ahead of Japan when it comes to contactless payments. But South Korea, holy shit, those guys are up on, what, 88%? 88% of all uh, adoption of payments. So uh, of all of the contactless cards, percentage of all cards are... 88% yeah, you just murdered that statistic. That is mad. But, like, it's <laughs> but just Korea, crazy. Like, loads Korea. and loads is what yeah. we're going But that's things like Korea is a country that is just, like, it's a, I've spent a fair bit of time out there with 500. Um, 
they are just much more open-minded to this stuff. Um, I, I didn't have to go to an ATM once in the entire three months I spent there. Um, every little store takes it. It's very much more an element of go with technology. There's more of a culture of it. And that's the... But there's, it's also that, that leapfrog thing. I mean, look, cards started in the US. It's not, it's not a country. It's a continent. You know, 100%. each state is bigger than, almost everything's bigger than the UK uh, over in the US. And you've got thousands of banks, thousands of them, like millions of retailers who have all used the same infrastructure and they were ahead. But unfortunately, that, that's the one thing and state and federal and everything else that prevents them from leaping forward where new, new countries who haven't had that infrastructure suddenly come in and go, well, that's crazy. Let's do it this way. So I think that there's, I, I think that there is something there about the, historical um uh although, ability that they had the infrastructure in fairness, like south korea isn't exactly like old school as a country and they had credit cards same time as the u.s um, size so, wise true it's a much smaller country and um the the mindset is different so but the one thing you're absolutely right on america they're very good at building infrastructure very bad at updating it in any way shape or form we've got it why change it yo but it, but it is it is an interesting one though because it, it's uh and it's the reason why venmo and all of these different things have been successful because actually the payment systems in the u.s have been so archaic that actually they needed that type of thing we just didn't need that type of thing over here. Therefore, actually, our banks have been providing faster payments and peer-to-peer payments are a thing here that you can do through Monzo or all different types of... There are other challenge banks. Yeah. <laughs> um, other challenge banks are available. Let's move on. All right. So we have another story here, that which is New Kid on the Block. So a story over on Fintech Futures. So this is a new challenger bank on the UK scene. So this is Chetwood Financial. Glad, so, glad, <laughs> page all of him, glad. Wow, that's... To our, to our international listeners, you to actually to all listeners, you might have to explain <laughs> what that is. Uh, that was the uh, first line of the Welsh National Anthem. Um, as the token Welsh person in the room, you may not have guessed that from my name. I'm aware of this. Um, but I was born and raised and I'm a Welsh speaker. So uh, I'm always excited when something awesome happens in Wales. And I, and I should connect that to the story. That's not just lovely nationalism, but actually this is another... Another Welsh banking contender has actually entered into the market. So this is uh, a banking license is being gained by Chetwood Financial, uh, to whom the regulator has granted a license at the end of 2018, apparently. So Chetwood emphasizes that unlike traditional banks, it is not obsessed with the customer ownership and cross-selling of other products, which is essentially the universal banking model. Uh, rather, its focus is on products being right for its customers and standalone. Our multi-brand strategy and our capability to create white-label products enable this approach. Um, so we spoke to Mark Jenkinson to find out a little bit more about this now. We chose the route of mobilization towards the banking license, which means that you get a restricted license. We got that at the end of um, we got that at the end of 2017. So we spent 18 basically in mobilization, which meant we were in effect a full bank license, but we were only able to take a limited amount of deposits, which is where the focus of the actual deposit taking license, the bank license is. Um, it's a for us it was a it was a process of building a deposit-taking product as well. So having built our lending product, having got that out in the market, um, we spent uh, a lot of the year building our savings product, which we will launch in the next few weeks um, as well. So it was proving that the use for us of our license obviously means that we are now 
full bank or a deposit taker. It helps the funding side of our lending that we want to do. This, and we've got a lot more different products we want to get out into the market over the next year. Um, so that's all important uh, for us and what we want to do for our customers. I spent a lot of time in consulting. I spent a lot of time trying to reduce cost in organizations, trying to outsource technology. So it felt wrong to then go and build a bank in London. Speaking with the uh, Welsh government and Welsh enterprise, um, they helped us in our really early days when we were starting out with um, with buildings uh, and stuff here in, in, in Wrexham in North Wales, which has been tremendously helpful. The other side to that, though, as well is um, some of the products and things that we want to get out there, we really do want to be in real Britain. We really want to be closer to the customers in that sense. And there is a bit of a London bubble. There is a little bit of a... Um, things are different outside of the M25, uh, and we are closer to some of those target customers that we are we're trying to serve. So there's, there's two parts to it in that sense. All right. Well, that's super, super interesting. I, you know, I guess all of the earlier conversation that we were having around community banks, like, is this somebody setting up in a maybe a slightly smaller community than inside the M25 to to then shape out? What, so what someone, do you think? As someone from North Wales, um, Wrexham is a uh, underrated town. Like, I'm going to be very biased. I love my home country. I'm very biased. Um, but the one thing I will say is that you know the Welsh are very much more much more community centric than dare I say it, the English. I'm going to get so much hate for saying that. Um, no, but it, but that is true. So in my experience living over in Wales, there was a uh, literally every weekend there was some sort of parade about how good being Welsh was. Mm-hmm. And it made me shit feel shit about like being an Englishman because essentially we are like, you know, basically, you know, vandals and sort of football, you sort of well, hooliganisms when we do it. Wales is one of the few bits of, uh, you know, the... Uh, the British Empire has never been offered freedom from the Empire. Let's, you know, maybe that's playing. Wow, into this gets up, like political, <laughs> political podcast territory very quickly. Yeah. We, we can uh, do so many things, but freedom is not one of them. Well, I was, lo- I was looking at their, their I don't web- think we'd want freedom either. That's the other thing. I was we, looking at we their like website, the United Kingdom. I was looking at their website, uh, Chetwood.co. Uh, we're focused on serving distinct customer segments that are currently underserved by the market with products designed specifically for their needs. We use modern technology and ecosystem apart to take the cost out of manufacturing banking products so that we can make our customers better off. We're also developing a range of products using personal data and active triggers to create dynamic products. So what interests me about that is it almost seems like it's not just one brand, but a lots of niches, lots of very specific things in order to to go after maybe the Welsh niche, where actually they don't want to to bank with a Welsh is, bank. Is Welsh banking like a new segment that I haven't heard of? <laughs> Apparently so. But what I think is really exciting about this, they've chosen Wrexham, which is not a default town. There is no university that is that is producing famous computer science graduates. The nearest would be Bangor and Manchester, um, and so. This is just like, I, I'm really hoping they're able to attract and retain a decent amount of talent there. Um, and that's the one thing that makes me really excited. If they can keep the talent there and bring it through and be a beacon for that, it's going to be really, really great for the North Wales economy. But it's, it's a big challenge, right? And, but, and, and on the back of uh, what Jason just read to us, other than we should do Jason Bates story time as a, as a separate <laughs> business. And I have a, a pet peeve with anyone who uses the word modern in any context. Um, it, it has a, a narrative of differentiation. The question is, can they deliver against it, both in terms of the actual product and in terms of, as, as you state, 
getting the talent because th there's an amazing emotive thing about going to a town that needs it but the town that needs it doesn't have it for a reason well it's that it's the you know atom model you know pick a very uh, low cost part of the country where you feel like you can uh, acquire talent northumberland wrexham somewhere that's not one of the big cities where you can be a major employer and a major uh, piece and buy a house for under a hundred thousand pounds with four bedrooms no you're making this up um <clears throat> Okay, maybe uh, and, fr and, and from that and from that base, then you can offer top of league table uh, products in particular uh, segments, just because you're running a super low cost mm. digital infrastructure with no branches. Yeah, but this, then, this is not new, though, right? Uh, Norwich Union was a thing. It like basically seemed to employ eighty percent of Norwich at one point. I know? wonder whether Norwich Massive would uh, would enter the room. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I get it in in every podcast. Hey, don't I? If the Welsh are here, <laughs> literally the Norwich. other side of the <laughs> It's fine, but until you have your own language, come on, come on, and a decent rugby team. That's the other thing. Have so. you heard Norfolk? It's pretty much <laughs> another language. Anyway, moving but guys, on. But before we move on, there is actually a buried lead in that statement, which says white label. Hmm. Is this actually the real thing? Are they basically doing a, hey, Tesco, hey, random company, you want to be a bank? You know, maybe that's their, 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 their buried lead. I'd hope so. I, Sincerely, I do. I, I honestly think if, if they can get something that actually has an element of um, like nationality to it, they will get lots of Welsh people signing up for this because there isn't an alternative in yeah. terms of that. Like you give them, you give a, a a card with a Welsh flag on it, and you will get a lot of people signing up for that. Just I will sign up for that. There's a dragon how, on it. Of how proud they are of being Welsh. Like I think that will definitely be a thing. There, there was a bank going for authorization, a Lentil Lentil Bank, um, that was actually aimed at the Asian population, which I thought was an an, an amazing like. Uh, way of going mm. about it. Uh, it was it was really interesting because they were going for like a full reserve banking model where they were actually going to have like vaults for people to keep their money in because they didn't want it in the financial system and they were going to have a branch for it. It was like almost like safety deposit box Wasn't stuff. that Metro Bank's secret play to get like well, the rich Asians in London to start moving their banking to them? Well, it's uh, not a secret anymore, however, is it? However, <laughs> uh, however the, it kind of plays out, there was something about like a certain population that wants Punjabi, Gujarati, Urdu, whatever, you know, banking with an Indian bank that it just shows you there are, there are you know, populations mm. where do you need scale of tens of millions of customers? Can you do it for single digit millions with the right infrastructure and aim at a specific segment? Have MVNOs taught us a lesson? Uh -huh. I mean, there are plenty of like ethnic focus. How many goddamn MVNOs focusing? It's all the same thing, goddammit. Why do we need them? Mm. I don't understand. But there well, we go. But, but it's uh, particularly though in your point though, if you only need to find a niche to make that niche profitable, but then your plan is to white label it as a proven thing that's operating in the market, then actually this is, this could be a really smart play, right? Yeah. Anyway, time will tell. On to our and finally story. Yay! <laughs> so this week, uh, we have a really fun one. And actually, it's it's one that has seen a huge amount of social conversation about, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? So moving on, we have Viola Black attempts to push Monzo aside. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm, you're all looking at me. No, 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 no. Wait. Over to you, sir. <laughs> Might you have something to say? Are you worried? You t tell me you're worried. Well, I mean, and, and for, just for anybody who doesn't know, so this is Viola Black has actually come to market. So they have gone to market with a reasonably aggressive uh, above the line campaign on tubes and buses, advertising and proclaiming move over Monzo. Have you sent them flowers? Thank you, guys. <laughs> 
and, so, and it's all... quite quite an interesting play, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I saw the ads. Like I saw the ads everywhere. All my friends saw the ads. Everyone saw the ads, and there was a lot of amusement at at Monzo. And um, a couple of things. Firstly, we love that we've become the company to which everyone gets compared to. <laughs> um, and secondly. I don't know if it was a coincidence or not because it's hard to work these things out, but we went to the top of the iTunes download store and beat PayPal for the first time. Yay! <laughs> Number one. So, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it may have just been a coincidence and it may, have, but it may have just been great, but it was perfect timing. Um, but you know, more power to them. Like the more people that try to like change people's relationship with money, um, the better, you know? Dude, did you send them flowers? Like no in terms in terms of awareness and and if if you want a sort of third party validation that you've become a household name, they've got it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'm all for this. There's there's a marketing play called Drag Race where basically you take the, your main competition and you say, actually, this is just a two horse race. Forget all those other players. Starling who? Revolut who? This is just Viola Black versus Monzo. Well, you do the comparison, and there's something powerful to that. But there's a big caveat. It's like if you've got a good product that's drag raceable, if it's available on Google Play Store, which I don't think it even was when the ads were out there, if the app's good, and if if actually you have something that's vaguely comparable, because otherwise you end up with, well, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the um, uh, the App Store reviews, but they're crazy. I mean, they're like 1.5 on Google, 2.7 on, on the App Store. Because people are then using that comparison to say, we're not just looking at your app separately. If you're saying there's a comparison, then we're comparing you. And yes, you don't have any of the features. You're not a bank. Your money's not safe. Like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there are three hilarious things about this. One is that they claim to be Welsh in many of the press releases, yet the website says there's something to do with being Swiss. Like, you know, um, Bank, the Welsh Development Bank, are doing an amazing job of, like, encouraging people to come to Wales, clearly. But I'm, I'm slightly worried if this is as Welsh as it seems. Um, I sincere, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, mean, I have mixed feelings about this, given the ad campaign. Um, and then the second thing that's absolutely hilarious about this is that I've decided to actually write a lecture series on it, um, on their advertising. Basically, because it's a textbook of why startups, when they get a load of cash and their series A and B should not go straight into display. It is such a textbook example of how not to do it. Who is their customer? Who are they really wanting? What's interesting, so the third thing that's interesting when you see the proposition, it is a, a paid for monthly service. Move over Monzo, a free service. Um, it's like, and who is their audience? And the worst thing is about it is like the, the goddamn advertising height. So they haven't realized this. So I'm standing up for some no sensible reason, even it's a podcast. Um, <laughs> the eye height on the tube adverts is all you see is move over Monzo. You have to look down below eye height to see that it's something very different. And I'm just like, who the hell has been given too much money? Who has not talked to their goddamn customers? Who does not know who they're after? I mean, look, it's a four pound a month thing. It's clearly not aimed at the average tube. It's more of a bus thing. And the messaging makes no sense. Come on, please don't bring my country's name into, into disrepute. Wales can do amazing startups. I'll, I'll be honest. Like I lost a bet who'd be most upset about this. <laughs> But it, but it, is this is this just is this just free advertising for Monzo? Um, I, I don't know what what effect it had because we had advertising campaigns running at the same time. But I do think it started an important conversation in a bunch of community forums about the importance of differentiating between a prepaid card that doesn't have FSCS protection and a bank account that does. 
because people were were like, well, like you know, why are they comparing themselves to Monzo? Monzo's a regulated bank, and your money is protected up to eighty five thousand pounds, and it's free, and other offerings are not. So I think so it was, it was is good for Monzo that. filing an ASA uh, complaint? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. Um, to me, it seems it, 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 there is a sort of slight misrepresentation. And let's be honest, you know, TransferWise built started the reputation of doing adverts that get taken down by the ASA, Monzo, famously so. Monzo is a very different company. Like, we were a small, scrappy startup once too. And, like, we we still think of ourselves as a small, scrappy startup. And if if anything has really made us, like, been eye-opening about this whole um, Viola uh, incident, if you want to call it that, it's that, like, I love that it's become an incident. <laughs> the Viola incident. Internally, it's forced us to question whether or not we're still the underdog because we still think like the underdog. Mm. That, that, is a, that is an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, like, success breeds a, almost a, it's like blackjack. Like, at point you, you've got 19, do you twist still? So actually, your, your need to respond to this type of thing really, really changes depending on whether you're a six month old company or you're at the point where you've got a couple of million customers, right? Um, uh, I'm pretty sure the answer is you don't need to respond to it, whether you're, like, when I deal with my early stage seed startups and this stuff happens to them, like, my seed startups are buying adverts all over London. If you've not seen our path, they're sort I can go on for a while showing how wonderful my portfolio is. But um, they're buying these ads all the time and they do get into fights. There's like a fight between Airbnb and Hostmaker continuously. Uh, sorry, Air Sorted and Hostmaker. The reality is, is not to respond is what we tell them 100% but is this, because it doesn't build anything constructive. But, but, is, but is this good for Viola Black? Like we wouldn't even know who these guys are without this happening. So is is the, the old sort of adage about, you know, no... Uh, bad publicity is better than no publicity, that type of vibe? Kind of. But There's the, no bad publicity, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, whatever that is. <laughs> kind of, but they want they, they were doing it specifically to get new users. And the problem is, is they're going to send a load of people in. It's going to be, they're going to have the onboarding costs. They're going to be on and using it. And they're all going to drop out with, you know, a large number of people get, will download and go, oh, four quid, I'm out or whatever it is. Um, and so... I mean, is it no bad publicity? Yeah, if, if you just want awareness. But this is a company that doesn't need awareness. It needs customers. And I yeah. keep, why will startups not realize this? You need customers, not brand awareness. Brand awareness gets you a hyped up valuation in an age when there is no problem with financial liquidity in VC. That is about to end in the next year or two, goddammit. Uh, I was I was very surprised that I saw that they were a privately held company first established in Vienna in 2012. Vienna, not Switzerland. Sorry. Um, that has offices in the UK, US, Dubai, and India, with planned expansion to Brazil, Canada, South Africa, and Australia. So this wasn't even a small startup founder, super young, gets a big check and suddenly decides to do it. Just These guys it have worse. been around. They've you know had a big raise recently or a big investment thing. It just strikes me as odd. It really does they strike me as better. odd. Yeah. That's the thing. Where's the discipline? Where's the grown-ups here? And they're giving startups a bad rep. We're not going to be allowed to buy adverts on the subway <laughs> if we keep doing this sort of stuff. All right. On that note, this wraps up a very entertaining show, I have to say. <laughs> like, it's one of the, those shows where you've lost two people halfway through it. <laughs> uh, we've got through more than I think we ever thought we would do, quite frankly. There's been at least, I think, two or three points where we've had to stop and go back just because people were banging the desk so violently. <laughs> I'm not saying it was one person, but it was definitely one person all the way through. It wasn't me. But on that point, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Simon, where can they hear more about you? Uh, don't worry about me. Follow Making Monzo on Twitter. We literally tweet pictures of the stuff we're working on in real time live. It's amazing. Sounds good. Tell him. Um, uh, so I am at Hello Chowders on Twitter. Um, and, but more interestingly, um, 500 Startups, 
please follow our main links. Um, we are easily findable. Just search at 500 Startups. Um, I keep a newsletter at ingrowthwetrust.com uh, for more rantings, musings, and um, stupid opinions on things. All right, Jay. Where- uh, you can find me at Jason Bates on Twitter and uh, I'm sure follow some of my Midwestern adventures in a, in a few weeks' time. And you can find me at David Breer on Twitter. And um, what do you think of today's episode? Oh, goodness me, I'm <laughs> terrified of hearing what happens here. Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget, if you love the show, please leave a review. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>